Hello and welcome to Obehave. I'm your host, Brian Middleton. And today we have Ryan O'Donnell joining us to talk about change in the behavior analysis field and all of the fun that comes with that. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. Really appreciate it. Um, it's been, a, what now, probably two or three years since the Reno um, boot camp for behavior analysts, right? It's a little bit more than two years. Is it pushing three now? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pushing three. Feels like ages ago. Lost track of time. Yeah. Uh, It's good to like have some one-on-one time with you and and pick up some Uh, conversation. Yeah, definitely. Once all this COVID stuff is chilled out, we should probably meet up and have a brew. Yes, totally down. Totally down. Well, um, Ryan, can you tell us, for those folks who may not know who you are, Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm a behavior analyst, first and foremost, got into the field accidentally by stumbling into a Psych 101 class, finding interest in it and nothing else at the University of Nevada, Reno, and then taking a psychology uh, course there. The next one was Psych 205, which was covering the principles of behavior. I had no clue, but it was the first course that I found myself like doing well in or reasonably well. Um, And also enjoying, like I used to skip the mountain on Monday morning or skip school uh, on Monday mornings, go to the mountain, try to snowboard, get a session in, things like that. And I found myself going to my 9 a.m. class, which was at the time, just like this weird crossroads. Like, who am I? What am I doing? Um, So I decided to pursue that a little bit more, reached out, bugged my professor quite a bit and um, said, what else can I do here? You mentioned there was some applied work and helping people out. So found a position working with adults with intellectual uh, disabilities. I also stumbled, stumbled into my first two mentors there, uh, Melissa Nosick, now the deputy CEO to the BACB, and uh, Mark Malady as well, which uh, hides in the background of some conferences and such. Um, if you ever happen to meet a Mark Malady, make sure that you you spend as much time as you possibly can because it's rare because he's always hiding in the background. But uh, I learned a, a ton from them uh, in undergrad, jumped into a grad program at Florida Institute, Tech, Institute of Technology. And then from there, I went into uh, uh, so two years there. It was a whirlwind, worked 100% of my time on behavior analysis outside of sleeping for a couple hours a night. It was way too much, but I learned a ton. Really appreciative again of that. Um, and then from there, helped start a center down in Orlando, Florida called Lodestone Academy. Um, I was a part of the startup team for the first year. It's still going on, but I've had absolutely nothing to do with it after that first year, in part because I just wanted to get back out into the Western lifestyle. Uh, as I describe it out here, Reno, Nevada's home base, the mountains, four seasons, Florida, where I was, was just not like where I was happy at the end of the day. So learned a ton there and then got back into working with adults with intellectual disabilities, um, starting into jobs and day training um, programs, understanding how to build some curriculum. We worked on some stuff with the school district here, helping on a consultation model, doing some professional development courses for them, um, for for people that worked in the school district on, um, what is it, essentially, prompting and some some basics of instructional controls what we worked on and then um also a curriculum uh which i really just did the business side of it all and uh so i got to give a hat tip to the team that was helping actually build the curriculum out there but for self-advocacy and goal setting uh for children with a 504 iep in the school system 
um, and got that kind of going. And it was during that time where I realized like the starting up and creating things is very fun for me. So part of listing all that out is like the startup, the creation, the new things, jumping around, like that was really fun for me. I started to realize. And um, one day was watching a video on YouTube and I watched all night through a whole lot of different um, videos of this one creator. And I went to work and I was like, why? Like, why did I stay up all night um, watching this? And realized that there was kind of something there. It took me a while to piece it together, but in short, really realized that there's there's something to storytelling, um, mastering your craft, whatever that may be, whether it's audio, video, written, whatever it is. Um, and was just really intrigued with like video as a concept for trying to disseminate stuff and then picked up a camera and realized it is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. So after messing around for about six, six months with it on some like personal things, I was just kind of filming, hiking, outdoor stuff, family stuff, things like that. Um, I was back, coming back from a flight and I was like, you either need to like pursue this or drop it. Cause I was spending a lot of time kind of thinking about it, not really, you know, putting a whole lot of time into it, but it, I felt like it was consuming like my thought process every day for, you know, half hour, a couple hours, or, like trying to understand what to do, watching a lot of video. Um, and so I decided best way to start is to just like make a public <laughs> commitment towards it. And I was like the daily BA um, was the concept at the time, daily vlogging, like posting a lot of content like that was really popular on YouTube. And so that was kind of where it came from BA being behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. So started that up. Um, it was just meant to be creating a video a day, uh, about behavior analysis on anything related to behavior analysis. And by no means if I hit daily, but if you started now and you never heard of it, you could go for about 500 days. <laughs> like there's, yeah. it's, it's still kind of <laughs> hidden in there, um, the daily aspect. But yeah, it was just a, a way for me to try to understand video as a dissemination sort of medium. Um, I've had some fun with it. And then uh, I've been doing that for about three or four years. So been in the field 10 or 11-ish. It's kind of broken up into like undergrad a few years graduate school, a couple of years, a couple of years working after graduate school. And then I'm on about three years, three and a half years now, I think, um, chasing this daily BA sort of stuff, but uh, daily BA is just an outlet to share stuff. Um, by no means does it pay the bills. Um, there are some supporters out there financially that help make things go on and some advertisement stuff that I do. Um, so I will acknowledge that for sure. But um, the, the kind of bread and butter, what I do is I help other people make courses um, out of their behavior analytic content or some, some stuff outside of the field as well. That's all video based. So that's kind of where I spent my time um, and the trajectory. And so it's been fun. It's been, it's like uh, always changing, I guess it's always been changing. Well, and um, I have to say uh, first, first, I, I want to ask you a question first, actually, who was that create content creator that you were watching all night out of curiosity? So it was Casey Neistat, which is uh, a vlogger out of New York city at the time. Okay. And um, Casey, uh, I think about Casey Neistat at the time as being kind of like the LeBron of the platform or something like that. Okay. Um, it was one of those that everybody knew, everyone, everyone knew um, at least, uh, and many wanted to aspire to be like, and many copied as well. And it was just this point in time in which someone was figuring out how to take uh, even the most mundane parts of life, share them and get people interested. And that's why I was like scratching my head. Like I, I didn't care about some person's life in New York City and their day to day, but the way he edited and told the stories and the things that he chose to share were very interesting and fascinating. So Okay. Clearly I was. Yeah. I'll have to check out Casey Neistat's stuff. Yeah. Uh, 
So uh, my story of encountering the daily BA is uh, I was frustrated with my professors for just assigning tons and tons and tons of reading and that's it. And I was like, there has to be more content out there because I'm interested. And so I came across your work and Sitecore's work and both of them pulled me in and, and made all the difference. And um, then your work got even more attention because you introduced me to act, uh, which isn't actually true. My best friend, well, one of my best friends, Brett Shumway introduced me to act. He is a counseling psychologist. Okay. Um, But he told me about act and then I read up on it and I did a little reading on it. And then it kind of, went in through one ear and out the other. Cause I was worried about a whole lot of other stuff. And then about a month and a half, two months later, you, your video pops up talking about act and connecting the behavior analytic piece to it. Mm-hmm. And then I recalled what he said. And it turns out that we were both able to go to that conference that you mentioned in Sparks and Nevada nice. together. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, it, you introduced, you reintroduced me and re-sparked the interest because for a moment I was interested and then I got sidetracked as I do. So um, <clears throat> I owe it to Very you cool. and Brett and a big thank you for that because ACT has made all the difference. Um, and it has been institutional in changing the way that I perceive behavior analytic things, Cool, um, which I think is a, I hope is a good segue into yeah. what our conversation is about, because um, one of the things that, that I love about behavior analysis is that it's very structured or it can be very structured. Mm-hmm. And as a person who is struggles with structure, uh, and needs structure and tries to enforce structure on himself as a result mm-hmm. of struggling with that. Um, I, I appreciate the the structured components, but the flip side of that is, is that sometimes it can be so structured that I've noticed we can become callous. Is that the right word? Maybe. It's it's a word I would choose anyways. Yeah. And, and the thing that I love that ACT has to offer is it, it helps us to self-examine and be kinder. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. There's a, a deliberate focus. There's like so much more of an emphasis on uh, private events or thinking, mm-hmm. feeling, emoting, these sort of things that, are acknowledged and 100% part of like radical behaviorism and, and what the field of behavior analysis is about, but they're not like taught and instilled or like uh, described in a way like ACT does uh, to be able to make them part of like the culture of behavior analysts, I feel like. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, like ACT, uh, my understanding of ACT and actually the Association of Contextual Behavioral Science was there was a, a pretty deliberate split off to kind of focus on creating a community that was like you were describing. Um, and they seem to be doing very well in that, I think. Well, because of that, that introduced me to the Association for Contextual Behavioral Analysts. So I'm a member yeah. now. Nice. Uh, and and I, I like to, especially when talking and, address, and working with people who have a problem with behavior and applied behavior analysis specifically, um, 
I say I am first and foremost a contextual behavioral analyst. And that radical behavior analysis is a valid science in its application. But if we are not contextual in its application, Mm -hmm. then we start seeing the problems that we've been experiencing and seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I I think part of this, and tell me if you want to go somewhere else with it. I'm just going to kind of keep riffing and bouncing off ideas. Let's just go. (laughs) Cool. I think part of this is, um, and I wish there was studies looking at this. So I just want to asterisk like a lot of the the points that I think I'll have to offer today is things that could be empirical studies if you had access to um, uh, people going through training programs to become board certified behavior analysts or behavior analysts um, themselves. And uh, we could potentially even think about those sort of things if we wanted to. But um, uh, a big part of it, I think, is is uh, you, you, when it comes to a philosophy and what's built upon that philosophy, the procedures, the various principles and assumptions that they hold, and ultimately, the treatment packages or whatever they create as they build up on this. Right. Um, We spend very little time on like really narrowing down, like what are the assumptions and, and how do we behave with respect to those assumptions consistently? When is it okay to deviate from them? Um, Is a totally valid thing to be talking about as well. But if you're, I feel like we, we do not get the fluent, uh, understanding as a community, like we're not teaching people to be fluent with what the assumptions are and how they impact things. As such, as you start navigating and moving forward, um, you have a weak foundation and things can get a little messy. And so um, that was actually interestingly one thing that radical behaviorism um, was was formed such that there was some holes is how the ACBS, now what's called the ACBS community looked at it. And they tried to reform those with functional contextualism, the philosophy of the science that CBS, this contextual behavioral science upholds. Um, and it's interesting. It's like almost like they saw exactly where this was going and we're trying to, trying to prevent um, some of the issues that we experience in like behavior analysis nowadays um, or applied behavior analysis as a community right now. Um, but yeah, I think the, the, the central issue here, or where I'd spend my time is probably a best, better way to put this, where I'd spend my time is trying to understand, um, are we even communicating what the assumptions of science are and living with respect to those when we're doing our BCBA training, our BCBA supervision, it's working with our clients? Do you understand radical behaviorism versus methodological behaviorism? Because um, interestingly, like, you reminded me of this um, uh, Skinner's early work was all talking about contextualism and it was a contextual form of uh, psychology at the time. So it's like, we kind of like, we're on the trajectory, got knocked off because of our own behavior of that trajectory. And then we've seen some splintering and like, you can call it different things, but uh, some of it's contextual, some of it's labeled contextual behavior science, and some of it is radical behaviorism that's supposed to be contextual that's not contextual anymore, and it's causing issues because they talk about being contextual, right? So, like, yeah, I feel like we have this like identity crisis that kind of come as a as a whole of behavior analysts that stems from not understanding the uh, the differences between all of these philosophies that we kind of talk about. Um, I guess my last point will be. We can, for example, with private events to try to tie this into something more useful. Um, 
a lot of training programs I see for the BCBA exam, uh, people that are instructing on the coursework will talk about how the main thing that we really focus on is a lot of overt behaviors or public events and things that we try to work on that we, we can see and confirm with multiple people as observers or instruments as observers. And uh, in reality, the whole point of radical behaviorism was to look at anything, including all the private events. And that's what ACBS and the ACT community is really focusing on. Um, and so we'll see in various different programs, people say, we're going to, we believe uh, that you can look at these private events. We'll look at it from a radical behaviorism perspective. However, in practice, what happens is just a lot of this methodological behaviorism or things where it's like, we're going to look at only the observables. It's almost like we, we haven't figured out how to teach looking at the private events. Um, so we don't spend time there and we're products of reinforcement. If we're only looking at observables, we're not looking at these private events. This is all yep. the training we have. Then we're going to really struggle looking at things that are taking into account things like acts that look at private events. So for me, it's almost like we created all of this mess ourselves. Um, yeah. we, we don't have anyone to blame except for like uh, ourselves and, and the systems we've designed. Right. But a part of that process is trying to figure out how to undo this mess um, or, okay, maybe not undo, but behavior sort out, analyze <laughs> thyself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <Right>? yeah. <laughs> and, and so like, I, I didn't realize that this mattered so much when I said it, otherwise I probably wouldn't have said it but I got a lot of attention for the fact that I am uh, at the time was studying to become a behavior board certified behavior analyst. I am now a behavior BCBA who is autistic. And I was very shocked that my, my joke page where I was sharing memes about behavior analysis to help me better study behavior analysis got so much and 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 i i hesitated for well over a year to do anything other than memes um just because i had that imposter syndrome and i didn't want to be in the limelight the fact that I, my voice is being recorded and i have to when i'm editing this hear my goofy voice yeah. and and criticize myself and then accept that that's just how i perceive myself and that's okay mm -hmm. and i can accept it and all the fun act stuff um yeah that 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 was a journey for me and still is a bit of a journey but my point being that the fact that i am a behavior analyst who's autistic and vocal about it was weird to me that I, I had such an impact. And very quickly, I started experiencing something that I never expected to experience as a white male, which is that I quickly became a bit of a token mm -hmm. for some people, some people who were resistant to change, who didn't want uh, who didn't want change. And they're like, well, see, this guy's a behavior analyst and he's okay with ABA. And then I very quickly had to examine and learn about the other aspects of it. And it was, it was hard. It is hard to see some of the, the darker aspects, but um, I have to say the one thing that I've always appreciated about myself is I don't usually shy away from hard things. Um, that's why I like rock hunting. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I I dove in deeper and I examined myself and what I was doing, um, and I realized that no, this is a change that needs to happen, and so um, I need to speak up. 
And I'm careful mostly because I don't want people to be so exposed to aversives that they, they stop experiencing and trying. So I'm trying to very carefully to engage in values and not overwhelm people with, Hey, there's some problems here. We need to fix it. But also at the same time, I'm trying very carefully to present. These are some things that we need to be aware of. And just like with discrimination training for our clients, we need to learn to discriminate so that we can do better. And we need to identify our values and live our values so that we can do better. And thankfully, I found a wonderful community of people, or maybe they found me, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and we're all working together and the community keeps growing because more and more people are like, wait, what? You're, I'm not alone mm-hmm. in this. Um, so that's the wonderful part. But the flip side of that is that I expect um, people within the autism community, and I am I'm an outskirts and outlier within that community, I would say. So I'm not truly in the community. I may be in a counterculture I guess you could say, mm-hmm. um, but I expect people within the autism community to to revile, to hate, to say awful things to me. Um, but I I will be honest, I was very surprised when I got the few, thankfully few, um, behavior analysts and other people who are behavior analysis adjacent who started saying stuff like, well, you're just virtue signaling or basically trying to undermine me. And um, when I found out about how there are other people in the behavior analysis community who are directly and deliberately targeting people who are being vocal about reform that needs to happen, Mm -hmm. um, including submitting ethics reports to both the BACB and to state level organizations that are causing quite a bit of havoc in the life of these people who are speaking up, um, including reporting content uh, for content violations, for community standard violations, even though there is none. And just because there's an overwhelming number of people who are doing it, platforms are banning or otherwise censoring. Um, And it hasn't happened to me yet. And I expect it to. And when it happens, I'm just accepting it as a part of the process. But I want I want this podcast to be talking about this as well as about the change that we need to make, because I think that we need to get the word out that there's there's people who are resistant to change. And you know what? It's OK to be resistant to change. Because the reason for resistance is that you're experiencing something painful, right? At least that's, that's my experience is when I feel a little bit angry or a little bit frustrated, it's because I'm, I'm not aware of the situation and I feel helpless. Mm-hmm. Um, just like when I had to examine my understanding of, of race and that sort of stuff. Um, there was a lot of discomfort and there was a lot of turning away from that pain for me. Um, but eventually I engaged my values and I turned into the pain. And on the other side of that pain, I found something even cooler, Mm -hmm. which is a way to connect with people and understand them. Mm -hmm. Um, And the same thing goes for uh, turning into the pain related to the potential abuse that behavior analysis can do and has done and still does. Mm -hmm. Um, And realizing that I am very capable of being a perpetrator of that, whether I intend to or not. 
and yeah, it's so I'm just over here rambling. I, I'd like you know, to, right. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this because uh, I guess I could keep on going. So that's right. Yeah. There's all sorts of things. Um, I guess uh, I'll, I'll probably forget some. The first one I think it's most important is um, our field has had plenty of opportunities and the capacity to be able to understand the criticisms that we're facing now been aware of many of them, I think for decades, mm-hmm. uh, especially depending on the topic. Um, and there's, there's, uh, I think I mentioned this just a second ago, but there's, there's plenty of resources. Like we are in a, a field that has a ton of cash involved. Um, there is not like a, uh, issue of having the resources and the time per se. It's, it's what are we prioritizing and what are we focusing on mm-hmm. and how are we like reallocating resources such that we can focus on these sort of things. Um, and so, I mean, each individual person can be held, I think, partially accountable myself, for example, of like trying to, to spend some time understanding those and helping create solutions. But I look at it as like the more, you're embedded into the systems that do dictate what it is that goes on, or the more you have the potential of a various platform, whether it's social media, a physical uh, company, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. like your, your, your weight in the equation grows and the, the, the uh, amount of impact you could have and the amount of potential um, uh, or the amount of, what is it looking at? Like responsibility you have to be able to like contribute some towards these sort of things increases. So um the thing that seems so I, there's there's no excuse I guess as to why we're not focusing on these sort of things. And then the other side is it seems to be just very very difficult to. Uh, and I don't know if this is part of every field. Um, I honestly just haven't been able to ask the you know the right people. I think the right questions, or also just haven't spent the like probably six or twelve months of diving into this full time. It would take me to really understand it. Like, yeah. do other fields experience like what we're going through right now? So, for example, um, the Association of Contextual Behavioral Science. Um, before that was formed, because that was formed right after September 11, 2001, um, as kind of a catalyst of what happened that day and them thinking they have something of value to offer the world and like, why not start acting on it? Um, there was a period in the, uh, I believe, late 80s and early 90s that they uh, dubbed where there's a lot of philosophy articles being published and talking about the differences between what they were forming and creating with ACT and RFT Um I believe were called the philosophy wars. And the thing here was there was a bunch of people going back and forth trying to argue as to uh, which form of science was uh, most pure, I guess, is the way to maybe think about it. And, and also like hitting the right questions and having the right framework to answer the right questions. And so my, my reading and understanding of this in hindsight was that um, our field in part wasn't getting along enough to the point that we saw a fracture in 2001 with ACBS taking off and going a different direction. They have more members than Association Behavior Analysis International and other organizations. Like uh, it seems by some metrics like that, that they, they know how to move forward and uh, ask the right questions and, and uh, spend resources on this and create a community like you were talking about at the top of the podcast. Right. Um, so I guess, to kind of like bring this thought together is I, I feel, I feel uncomfortable as a scientist, not knowing what to point to, but there's gotta be something in our 
way our systems design the way that we're training people and like communicating with one another that uh, in this behavior analysis field, BCBA, ABA, this is not CBS, not those folks. Yeah. They're like, we're not, we're not creating a system that's like growing, expanding and bringing people together. We're creating one that's fractioning and pushing things off. That's divisive. Um, yeah. And like the internet was a thread of like, it created a decentralized way to communicate, share information, experience the, you know, like run a podcast like this. So there's like some other things that are confounds that like may have alluded to this happening quite a bit, but I don't think that's all it is, <laughs> you know? Um, so I don't know. I, it's almost like I expect more from leaders in our field and I don't know if that means more hours. I think they're working very hard on these sort of things. I think it's like thinking differently or working more efficiently. So for example, this is the best example I I think I've thought of ever. (laughs) Um, And not that it's like a great idea, but it's like the, 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 the one that I think has would be an interesting research question for us as a field is, uh, we talk about the BCBA growing faster than almost any other credential ever. Uh, I think that's what the burning glass report was or whatever it was that was published up on their website on the BACB. Um, but like there's companies like Uber, Lyft, other tech companies like this have grown at unbelievable rates. Uh, I mean, Amazon with how many employees it added just in the last few years. Like my point here is we could be looking at people that are experiencing in totally different sectors, really similar growth issues when it comes to um, how fast things are changing. And I've always wondered like, what if we stacked our board of directors on the BCB with a couple of behavior analysts and then people from all sorts of different sectors that have experienced different perspectives here. Um, and, yeah. and this would include constituents uh, that are receiving services, right? Um, but technical skill sets outside of our field that might be able to understand how to help us work a little more efficiently. Um, but it just, it, it seems to be uh, just very guarded and reserved for uh, people that have behavior analytic experience, which we know a lot about human behavior, but we, we, we clearly don't know enough to get ourselves over these humps, right. <laughs> and like yeah. solve some issues. So uh, I've, I've gone, I've gone like over the 10 or 11 years in the field, like completely drinking the Kool-Aid to the point that now I step back and I'm like, do we, how much do we really understand? How much do we really know here? Cause, cause we're, we're running some issues. So that was like one uh, realm of thought, I guess, that came from this is maybe we're, we have certain people, certain positions that have more responsibility that uh, should be looking to alternative ways to build our systems and understand how to best train people, how to best supervise people, how to best um, uh, get people to communicate with one another, like all sorts of stuff like that. We have these compounds of like the internet decentralization and stuff like this, that like compounds and a lot of industries are struggling with this, not just us, like mm-hmm. the internet's, the internet's tearing up society in some ways um, and bringing them together in other ways. It's like, it's, it's not... Not always one or the other. Um, it, it can it can depend, I guess. Um, but then the other complete other side of it was, um, this is kind of related because we've set up systems like this. But uh, so, for example, like the the duty of a behavior analyst to call someone else out if they think they're being unethical has quite a bit of power. I understand why it's there, um, but having something like an anonymous system that allow anybody to report anything anonymously leads to some weird systems <laughs> in place. Um, and so, when you were talking about having other behavior analysts reported for ethical issues that aren't ethical issues that are 
that are very much just there to try to, uh, I think I know one that you're speaking of actually, um, people being reported to, to state associations and, and such. Um, it's, it's, uh, like we've partially created that, but we're living through this time in this culture. I don't know how much this is worldwide. It's a pretty big thing. It seems like in the United States of, of uh, cancel culture and, and different perspectives of um, people learning that they can use their voice and amplify it through various technologies to try to further control, influence their base or, um, serve their own personal goals. It doesn't even have to be for some sort of platform, right? Like you can just, you can use it to kind of make the world seem a little bit better, at least with respect to your feed or your hometown or whatever's mm-hmm. going on. So it's like, um, it's, it's frustrating, I guess, to uh, on that aspect, because I feel it could be doing a little bit more to, to try to support people that are trying to step out of the, the norm and do things a little bit differently. Um, but we're, we've also, um, we, I guess, as a society have like opted into a system that is largely on these social media channels, at least an ad based revenue system to where if you're, if you're, uh, um, if you're, if you're valuable and bringing in money, you can keep doing the things you want to do. There's certain points in which that line crosses, but there's also, uh, we're beholden to the people that design these algorithms. Yeah. We opt into them, but we're beholden uh, to them as well. And they can be shut off with a flip of a switch because of the size that they are now. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that says much, but <laughs> oh, it's, it's pretty crazy. It, it presents a lot of challenges. And, and one of those is, and I catch myself in this too, is I, I'm more than happy to drop, you know, five bucks on, on a sandwich or more uh, mm-hmm. or, or something else that I would eat, but I'm hesitant to donate a dollar a month to a creator. I like, yeah. Right. Stuff like that. And it, and it kind of, there, there are some attempts to try to, to get past the, um, the, the ad driven uh, approach and the algorithmic driven approach to things. But at mm-hmm. the same time, it's, there's contingencies of behavior. And one of those contingencies is like the sandwich is immediate. Mm-hmm. The, the donating to the creator that I like and I care for yeah. is less immediate. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see an immediate payoff for that. And so there's applications of behavior analysis, but the flip side to that is like, and I, and, and I think you did a very good job of, of pointing this issue out that um, we are really, really good at echo chambering ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and before I encountered behavior analysis, I was studying, um, and learning in other ways because I was just trying to be a good special ed teacher. I was trying to do what was right by my, I I could do for my kids and working in a school, uh, school system where, uh, uh, revenue is determined strictly by, uh, what politician is currently favoring education versus not Mm -hmm. and which administrator is currently brown nosing the right way. And then to be a special educator where, as I like to say, we're the first to be called and the last to be funded and the first to be defunded. (laughs) (laughs) And COVID-19 has been an indictment on the education system uh, for exactly this reason. Um, 
I was doing everything and anything I could because I cared about these kids mm-hmm. and I still do. And I, and I am in autism services, well, developmental delay services. Um, and the reason I'm still here instead of going elsewhere is because I really, really, really care about these kids. And I wanted to be the hero that I needed when I was a kid. Okay. Um, but this is my long winded way of saying, why are we limiting ourselves? Why are we holding ourselves back? Why are we so quick to be critical of research that other areas of psychology um, do? Because it's not single subject case design, or it's not, it's not quite perfect in this way. And it's not quite perfect in that way. What if instead of being critical in that way, we'd be like, well, Hey, what if we could replicate this through behavior analysis research? Yeah. What if we could cross boundaries? What if we could try to solve problems and do these things? And and that's why I like the association of contextual behavior science. Um, and, and I'll tell you right now, I recently finished a really amazing book and I'm going to, I'm going to drop its title and and the authors. Um, it's radical inclusion, what the post 9-11 world should have taught us about leadership. And it's by um, Martin Dempsey, former chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, okay, for the U.S. military, and Ori Braffman, who is a um, professor at UC Berkeley and uh, a self-espoused hippy-dippy beatnik guy. Mm-hmm. So two people from completely, totally opposite walks of life come yeah. together and write this really amazing book. And, and I, when I read it, I was, I was looking at it and I was going, do they realize that they're hitting on things that have been researched in relational frame theory? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, do, they, do they realize that, oh, wait, there's some behavior analysis stuff there. Oh, wait, mm-hmm. wait, wait. Do they realize that they're hitting on moral foundations theory, which I don't know if you've heard of moral foundations theory. I don't think so. Um, that's another area of research that is I'm fascinated by. Um, the researcher is Dr. Jonathan Haidt. Um, okay. And I, I highly recommend his book, um, The Righteous Mind. Um, okay. But there's a lot of overlap in research and all these things that are helping to bring things together. And I, I, I hesitate to be critical in why aren't you doing enough when it comes to leaders and people who are in positions, because Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to be overwhelmed with all this stuff and trying to do things. And then you have your own, your own view of things. And, and then you've got a lot of different people talking to you and saying things, but at the same time, like one of the reasons why I try to read outside of this field and, and try to explore outside of, of my experience is because some of the best ideas that I have come because I'm experiencing and hearing from other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. Part of the reason, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you remind me of, uh, I mean, for anyone that's out there, that's a staunch behavior analyst. um, uh, I want to remind folks that Skinner was in English first and then hopped over to psychology and uh, things like Walden too. Well, written not the best i'll I'll say i appreciate the book (laughs) showed that you can bring things together um and create different stuff right and like different experiences can lead to some pretty interesting things um yeah it's uh i know i can't remember the type of the book the title of the book but i know it was on uh bill gates's recommended reading list from last the end of last year um 
but there's there's a number of people, including one of those, whatever the five it was, that was uh, showing just the value of when you understand and truly understand, like you can behave with respect to different fields, different perspectives, different areas, and bring them together. Uh, we're moving into a world. I, I feel seeing that. Like <laughs> you learn you learn one perspective, and you only have that one perspective. It almost becomes just an ideology, and then you you only have so many things that you can reach into for your toolbox, and you run short, right? And you experience other issues, even if they're delayed. Um, so that's all I was going to add. Well, and. To quote Dr. Stephen Hayes, who on one of my other podcasts said this, if you want to see a behavior analyst go from being analytic to mentalistic in no time flat, uh, ask them why they think other fields don't like us. <laughs> because yeah. we, we've done such a, we collectively, I'm not speaking to anybody individually. If you're getting, yeah. if you're feeling attacked, I'm sorry, but at the same time, not because this is, this is uncomfortable, turn into it. Uh, <laughs> like, we've earned this reputation. Mm -hmm. And, okay, so other people have been, have been, been not so nice, right? Um, but that just because someone else is not nice doesn't mean that we're still not a part of the environment and we still can't respond in a different way. We don't have to be reactive. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it's um, you know the the Steve Hayes, the Act Community, ACPS. Um, I haven't kept as is in tune since the pandemic. Um, paying attention, I need to like get back to a conference and like catch up on the reading and what's going on and scroll through the journals a little bit more. But one thing that they've uh, done quite well is working as a community, saying like where are our holes and what do we need to work on filling. Mm -hmm. um, and relational frame theory started from that. It was things that were being written down and talked about. I believe the story goes, Steve handed off a book or I don't know if he handed off a book. Someone gave Dermot Barnes Holmes the book, one of their uh, books from one of the conferences in Reno, Nevada, uh, and before like relational frame theory and act were like completely pulled together. And he picked that up and he ran with it and he started researching. And Steve will say like, if it wasn't for Dermot, Dermot picking these things up, we wouldn't have seen RFT as it is today and like the the, the way that it flourished. Um, but what I've seen them do on their uh, listservs and way, the way that they communicate on their boards and such, even conferences saying, here's our gaps and here's what we need to work on filling. How can we make this happen as a community? I don't see that happening in the most behavior analytic realms. There's some certain, um, I know there's some collaboration amongst people in different areas of research they're trying to build these sort of things out. Um, I mean, I think about some of the stuff with naming theory, uh, naming and horn and low, and some of the verbal behavior work that's going on in the now verbal behavior the last 20 years. You can see collaboration, people trying to understand things and, and fill in gaps. Um, but like ACBS, uh, what is it? I think it's over 400, maybe over 500 uh, randomized control trials now. Traditional nice. behavior analysis is leaning on uh, still like the two or three, like the main one that people point to is Lobos. And then there's a couple others that we can lean to, I think in the mid 2000s. Um, and those things are required to be uh, listened to and respected by uh, people outside of our field, but they also add value, like you were saying, or alluding to at least, 
when you look at things through these other methods, like they can answer different questions. So to one thing that Steve taught me, um, coincidentally at a boot camp early in uh, my career was to because I was I was essentially like not I was only interested in behavior analysis and I was just like very dogmatic and focused on that. And he 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 said, even if you don't appreciate or sorry appreciate strong word, I'm putting words in his mouth a little bit here. I'm trying to paraphrase right, but it was something effective like even if you talking to me don't um, find like it interesting how they're trying to conceptually approach it. They're asking really good questions yeah. and like there's there's data there and there's ways that you can interpret it. And I was like, wow, I've been writing off, <laughs> you know, a psychology for the last like four or five years as I was diving into this behavior analysis stuff. So um, I think it's how we're, we're, we're trained at the end of the day is where we have to point to, uh, it's not an individual person, but it, it's, it's like this training system for behavior analysts is yeah. uh, trying to do the most they can in the two years. And I've kind of come to the point that maybe two years and 18 credits after a master's degree just isn't enough. Um, I don't want to be someone that's like, we all need to go get our PhDs and this stuff to be able to practice. But maybe that's why the American Psychological Association leans on a PhD and a PsyD process because it does take so much understanding and, and you know, learning in all these different areas to really, to really um, become fluent, you know? Um, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> maybe there's an alternative universe and someday... Someday the uh, the tech giants will crack into there and we can see what what the correct thing was. But well, I, I get lost on this. I can just ask a lot of questions, you know. Uh, well, I, I've been kind of asking these questions too, and and um, one that occurred to me actually today of all all things was because nice. um, there's a lot of graduate students at my company, like a lot, mm-hmm. and I the reason I came to this company. I moved out here for other reasons where I'm at now. I'm in Tennessee now for mm-hmm. other reasons, but I selected this company because they were talking the talk and I, I saw hints of the walk. Okay. And so I came here and then within, within two weeks, I saw most of the things that I, that, that indicated to me that they really are truly doing it. And one of those is mentorship doesn't happen. Doesn't end after after you have your BCBA, the exam. right? Yeah. The, the, the exam's done. You're, you're just not, you're not automatically just like on your own. It's, it's a lot of collaboration. It's a lot of work. And there's a lot of, there's still things that are being expected to be done. Granted there, I, I'm, since I'm a newer BCBA, I'm still a little bit overwhelmed, but I'm grateful to have experienced people showing me and teaching me, helping me, guiding me. And, and I, and what I know well, I think I know pretty well, but I still have plenty to learn. And so one of the thoughts that I had to myself, because these graduate students were talking about the shift between fourth and fifth edition task list mm-hmm. and the change in, in, in hours, I was thinking about it and I went, what if instead of shifting to more hours before the exam, the expectation was after the exam and you've passed Continued. it, you have additional supervision that continues after and yeah. expectations in that. And that way it's the emphasis is on, because part of the, part of the problem is, is companies can't bill for an RBT as a BCBA. And so there's mm-hmm. a financial pressure. And so therefore companies are going to have our RBTs who are candidates or, or behavior analysts and training specifically mm-hmm. uh, do RBT work and then try to shoehorn in anything that's, 
BCBA experience wherever they can. And mm-hmm. some companies will pay and some will expect you to pay, but long and short of it, or some will expect you to do things for free, but the long and short of it is it's, it's difficult for proper training to happen. Oh, for sure. And so we're getting a lot of people who are half trained or partially trained because the financial pressure is keep the doors open and keep the, keep the organization moving um, yeah. and growing. So if, if post-graduation and post-passing the test, the expectation was as many or more supervision hours. And that's scary for me to say, because right now I'm <laughs> under a year as a BCBA. And yet yeah. part of me, even though it's frightening for me to say that and say, I should be doing that. Yeah. It's also, I should be doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I am doing that. I'm trying to find other people to mentor me, to surround myself by people who can mentor me, to constantly be learning and talking and, and considering. And yeah. you know what? Being humble enough to say, I don't know, or I screwed up and I need For to sure. do something better. Yeah. You're, you're, I'm, I'm thinking back. I did my uh, BCABA first, and then I jumped in for my BCBA. Um, and it was... I had submitted, so it was, I don't remember the exact number, but it was basically, I had a thousand hours. I had to work towards the intensive practicum. So instead of having the 1500, it was 750, I think at mm-hmm. the time. Um, but those were intensive by all means. <laughs> and that was not like, that. there was far more than just that that was on paper that I completed. Um, but then there was, uh, so I had a minimum of 750 I had to do, but I actually completed like an extra the way it staggered, I had an extra um, set of hours that I had tagged on to like my application with BCBA. And then um, that's not counting just the the time spent reading and exploring all sorts of stuff uh, in addition to that. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, like the bookshelf behind me here is just behavior analysis stuff. I got so engrossed in it and paying attention to these things. And I continued uh, for a good three years after graduate school and wrapping that up. And my point of this is it was like more like six years of like full time plus on the side reading at night. Um, I used to read a chapter and an article a day, like consistently. Wow. Um, And there was so much consumption that I can point to the book and find the chapter. (laughs) Like I can't recall the information. I'll be clear here. Like I was, I was not doing the best on making sure I retained it all, but um, it wasn't until like, uh, I, I kept a mentorship group around me for the two years post-certification. So five years total and like getting ready. And it wasn't until like that fifth or sixth year when all this kind of came together where I re- like recognized like, oh, I can, I can approach this case and feel comfortable. And I am not like stressed in the moment or like, what should I be doing in the moment? Or like I'm writing down notes to like describe to somebody later. Cause I'm struggling to understand the case. Like it took a hell of a lot more <laughs> than, than those, uh, in those 2000 hours or 1500 hours, whatever the system was to like feel competent. Um, you know, one thing I've also thought would be really interesting, and this is because I've got a number of different friends in medical models or medical training programs, is uh, structuring it such that you have to gain certain types of experiences. Again, this sounds like uh, uh, I can I can understand that this will be easy for someone that's that's saying this after they went through the process. That being said, I like personally did this myself. 
I made sure to work in a number of different uh, with a number of different populations, number of different settings across those populations. Uh, worked with non-human uh, learners as well. I uh, jumped around all over the place, and it was just to get an understanding of the breadth of the field and work within all the different areas. Like I worked technically in a uh, a lab that did some EAB, a lot of philosophy sort of work. Excuse me, um, did the ABA practice sort of thing, um, and. It was thanks to my mentors that like all that stuff happened. So it was not like I had some sort of foresight here. They were just like, oh, you should do this. You should do this. You should do this. Yeah. This is why it'll be good. Um, but what if we had designed that? So like uh, physical therapists, different people that are going through residency programs and med school, um, there's rotations. Those rotations are set up to gain experience and understand. So for example, um, prior to becoming a doctor of any type in the medical field, you're doing rotations to understand, do you like radiology? Do you like family med? Do you like plastic surgery? Do you like trauma? Do you like, um, you know, ENT, OBGYN? Like there's, there's, you're going around to experience these sort of things. Um, and it's odd to me that we're a medical field technically, or like we're situated in the medical field in the way that we build. Yeah. And no one's been like, hey, <laughs> let's let's clean up the experience here. But it would also allow you to find opportunities uh, of, of or like create situations where you can figure out what you're good at, what you enjoy. And um, or if you're not good at it and you enjoy it, like start building those skill sets towards it, right? Um, so I don't know. I've I feel like we've we've uh, sometimes when we have these conversations, it's like, oh, we're kind of tapped out and we're doing the best we can. And yeah. I question that. I, I, I kind of question that. On, I, I really question that on the training side and say, I've seen other models in different fields that sure would take a ton of work to transition over, but um, would it be better? Question mark. Probably. But do we have the ability to measure these things? Yes, we do. <laughs> Why well, we haven't been doing this for the last 30 years is beyond me. <laughs> well, and, and my, my counter argument for the we're tapped out and, and we, we, we really can't do this is that's how parents feel when we're working with them. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have figured out and, and, and when the parent can, can trust us a little bit and we can show them and coach them. I don't like to say parent training. I like to say parent coaching, mm -hmm. but if, if when we can coach them through the process and they can change up their systems and I'm saying this right now, cause I just had a, a conversation with the parent where it clicked and the parent yeah. started making changes and then asking me, uh, uh, asking me if these were good changes. And I'm like, I am so glad you said that you were going to do that because I was actually going to suggest that the next time we yeah. have a parent training. So you're, you're doing an amazing job and yeah. things are changing in the positive way for the child, children, actually, because mm -hmm. there's more than one involved. Um, and, it, and it's just, okay, so yes, we're feeling stressed out. Yes, we're feeling a little tapped out. There's a lot going on, but that's mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. That's always going to be the case. Yeah. Like, so when is the time to make the change? And that's one of the reasons I love ACT so much because ACT doesn't focus on what we were doing wrong, except in so far as to inform how we can change our behavior. It doesn't focus on you should feel bad or ashamed of this thing. It's It focuses on, how do you move towards your values right now? Mm -hmm. I feel like we're doing a pretty okay job of moving towards our organization, our community, our, our field values, a pretty okay job, mm -hmm. but maybe we need a course correct. And I think that's where things like this podcast come in 
Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the, where the content that you create, the things that we post, the things that where we're talking together in social media, because yeah. um, a big part of leadership is stepping up. Um, also a big part of leadership is having compassion for other leaders. Mm-hmm. So I have compassion for the leaders who are feeling overwhelmed and there's a lot going on. And I get if, if anyone happens to listen to this podcast and hears this, who happens to know someone in leadership or is in leadership, please know that this is not a rag session. Yeah. This is a, hey, we're here. Let's work together. Let's solve the problem. And I only have so much power and influence and we all only have so much power and influence but if we're all working together and we're all talking about this and we're trying to discuss it and trying to make a change in a positive light way, the puddle turns into a pond. The pond turns into a lake. The lake turns into an ocean. Yeah. Try fighting the ocean. The, uh, yeah, it was everywhere we've kind of been here. And I think part of that's just me kind of rambling along, along these sort of lines. Um, there's, there's, there's ways to contribute towards them. So there's too much for one individual practitioner to try to focus on, on like these sort of systems sort of issues, but what I've tried to do, and it, maybe this is just a good peace of mind, but I really do think it actually helps too, is uh, try to just figure out like how you can contribute there. So part of the daily VA content is just things that like I appreciated or found um, interesting along the way that I just wanted to get back out there and communicate and share. Um is a part of it, but like I teach an intro to behavior analysis course for an online university. Um, and this is knowing that the training systems that we've designed along the field and what we've talked about today, like I wholeheartedly believe in all this sort of stuff, but it's also like sit on the sidelines or step into trying to uh, help do your part and, and, and make it a little bit better. So when I was originally approached for uh, consideration for it, um, asked to apply for it. I was like, well, I, I'm cool with like this scope of behavior analysis and like the coursework and like the principles, concepts, foundation sort of stuff. Cause like, I've really am passionate about it. And I think I, at this point, I know a lot of examples of things outside of just the uh, primary areas of focus that most BCBAs have to be able to show as examples, to kind of paint a complete picture of what this science could do. Um, and so every day I teach those, I teach one tonight in 45 minutes. Um, the, the, it's the same concept, same intro concept that I learned 10 years ago. Um, I say it now 16 times a year and it, uh, it's still just as interesting and fun. And it's like giving an accurate representation as to like these issues. It's, it's, it's what am I trying to say? Uh, I get to present ways to potentially prevent people from misunderstanding our field or like covering, understanding the, 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 wide perspective of what behavior analysis really can be and what it is as a science earlier rather than like them struggling along the way. So it's like, yeah, I feel like it's contributing to something every time I teach one of those courses, which is cool. So whatever it is, people listen to this, like there's, there's only so much time finding something and putting some behavior towards that um, does help the system. And so that's one thing I've tried to do to kind of like keep my sanity while I sometimes riff with folks like yourself, Ryan, to, to un, I'm like, man, this is crazy. How are we going to fix this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, to kind of go in that, but the, the, I guess to tie this back into a little bit of what you brought up and I didn't hit on too much is the, 
the issues that we create for ourselves sometimes of other behavior analysts calling each other out and things like that, um, I think it's pretty far and few between where attempts to call somebody out for something is truly like an unethical behavior analyst doing something that's very unprofessional, unethical, and moral. Um, quite oftentimes it's just, it doesn't look like what I do or it uh, potentially conflicts with the revenue model of what I'm trying to obtain or uh, perceptions thereof. Like it's, it's uh, used as a tool to try to engage in some counter control um, or to potentially, uh, there might be some things like signs of damage where people want to see other people torn down and brought down. Um, and I guess a couple of things. It's crazy that a field that understands positive reinforcement, the effects of aversive control and punishment, punitive strategies would even dabble in those sort of things. On the other side, we're all humans. It appears that we do this stuff across the way. I yeah. chuckle because it helps me like reconcile and like deal with it a little bit. Um, but it's also like really devastating um, when some of those those things happen. Um, I had my, for example, my Facebook page coordinated 230 people uh, within 24 hours coordinated to like report it for being anti-science, uh, pr promoting uh, anti-science content, which is absolutely absurd. Go back and try to find something. <laughs> At least I can't see it. Maybe this is my perspective, but like find the I thing that's anti-science. And uh, what's crazy is um, Facebook was just like, well, uh, they reported as anti-science and you can have an independent fact checker look at the reports that they, the posts that they submitted, but the fact checking process is actually uh, set up to where news outlets, think about established news outlets that are out mm -hmm. there that everybody knows. Um, it's if something that you write was reported by them for being false. So like, since I created the content, um, and not them. And like, it's not tied to them. I can't actually go through the fact checking process. So it was, it's, it's just, it's just, it's insane. It's like a reflection of the, the times in the U S partially, um, not just our field, but, um, what that does, for example, is it's, uh, severely restricted the number of people I can reach on Facebook, um, and inadvertently, um, Instagram, I'm effectively, going to it's effectively it's effectively like a shadow ban it's not an actual shadow ban um, yeah. but it's like i can post things but the number of people that see them are are few and far between uh think about uh anywhere from 10 to 50x less people will see things as a result of the efforts of that community um, and i had screenshots tags in some places of things like seeing where it came from uh it's been both outside the field and within the field that's the crazy thing for me is like behavior analysts are like, how can we help make behavior analysis better? Let's tear down other people that are doing things in behavior analysis. Like, man, the, the state of our field in some of these regards. And uh, I know only, I only got a, it's my perspective. I opted into this. I decided to create things online and opt into this. I'll acknowledge all those sort of things. Um, but I mean, I didn't, there's some point in which I'm going to like retire from the field and I'm just going to like share the like cease and desist letters and the other BS that I've ran into. Um, I don't just for the sake of being able to like have a retirement and like be able to like live my life <laughs> to a degree. Um, but like the week two that I started the daily BA, I had a cease and desist from somebody that was on an ethical board saying that what I was creating was threatening uh, the uh, services that they were delivering at their company and the children that they were serving. And what it was is I made something on relational frame theory and they were a verbal behavior approach company. And because I published this video on YouTube, that had absolutely nothing to do with them. 
Absolutely yeah. nothing to do with it. Never mentioned. It was just a concept related to relational frame theory. Um, it was a cease and desist in the mail of you need to stop creating these videos. And this person sits on a board, like at the time sat on like the ABA ethics hotline and some different boards like that um, has created a conference. that's very welcoming and inclusive and like not about these sort of things. So it's just, uh, it's crazy to, to see what happens behind the scenes. Um, it's been in different forms, um, but it was literally week two where I ran into like heart drops start, you know, um, worrying about and thinking and, 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 uh, hindsight, I think it's some of the gaslighting attempts and there's now six or seven of those different experiences I've ran into. Um, some, I think a little bit more like in hindsight, if I look at them and I see what people are critiquing and saying, like there's definitely lessons to be learned there. Uh, they always important as important as I think people try to make them out to be not all the time, <laughs> but uh, a lot of them were unfounded as well. Um, and just kind of like baseless, which is pretty crazy. And it takes a severe, severe toll on like your day to day and what you're spending your time on. And like, it's not so much anxiety, stress it's, it's a little bit anxiety and stress provoking and like causes issues like that. I feel like I'm pretty calloused and really fortunate and lucky to not run into these, which I shared this before we recorded. So I feel extremely lucky in the mental behavioral health side of things to, to, to deal with people. Um, and like, I guess what would affect people sometimes just doesn't seem to affect me as much anymore. Um, luckily, like it doesn't give me the negative side for too long and too crazy, but yeah. um, it does, it does definitely like, if you look at the channel, the last like six or eight weeks, since I've been dealing with two different things like this, uh, it just makes me not want to create stuff. <laughs> like yeah. it makes me not want to make stuff. And at the end of the day, what's going on there is you have a very small number of people um, that are, that are holding back one person in one way of what they're trying to do. Um, and it's, it's, it's just not behavior analytic to be doing these sort of things and to be pulling people down. Um, and if you don't like it, create something that's better. <laughs> like, like you yeah. like use the tools to create something that's better. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It just, it makes me like less interested, I guess, in, in wanting to be a member of a community where there's a community that is okay with systems that are uh, designed where they try to bring people down or like threaten these sort of things or uh, just create coercive situations or aversive situations. So um, it's pretty crazy. And like on the bookshelf back here is, Marie Sidman's uh, coercion and it's fallout. <laughs> like, like that's not, that's not recommended reading for any behavior analyst, unfortunately, but um, I'm aware of, but if it was, we probably wouldn't be in the, even having this recording, this podcast and this conversation, because everyone would understand like what happens when you start to design these sort of things. So um, I don't know if you, if try to always think of some themes here, like there's, there's a lot of things going on in the field, pick and choose something to help make a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and work towards those sort of things. And if you're uh, my perspective, at least is if you're leaning on trying to tear others down and they're working on something that's behavior analytic and it's a little bit different um, you that's, that's okay. Let's watch, let's observe over time. Um, let's see, like, for example, if someone creates a YouTube channel and behavior analysis, I want to see like video 100 and 200, not video one and two and slam them for it. I want to see where this progresses and where this goes. It's a learning yeah. endeavor. Right. Um, and the net is going to be positive. I think that's how it is on what I've created too. Like the net 
positive is definitely there. Um, and you might have some misses here and there, but like, that's how it goes. Uh, hopefully they're not too bad. There are some in which we maybe need to like hang up our boots and not be a behavior analyst anymore <laughs> if we're doing yeah. completely drastic, horrible things. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just a, it's a weird state of current affairs. Hopefully getting together in person a little bit more soon will bring people back together, but yeah, who knows? Ho- hopefully it will. And um, one of the things that, that you know, I think you hit the nail on the head, find something that you can do. Right. And it doesn't have to be big. It is big because it's, it's the culmination of everybody finding something that we can do to improve. Yep. Um, But I'm going to do a little tag here for one of my favorite special interest groups. Um, Open source education. It's a wonderful thing. There's an open source education, special interest group. um, And uh, it starts with, just creating something, anything. It doesn't have to be. Uh, it doesn't have to be phenomenal, amazing, world, world destroying, amazingness. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the stuff that Sitecore puts out. Some of it's kind oh, of totally. hokey and cute and just I, yeah. goofy. I wanted to, I wanted to acknowledge and shout them out. Um, I get asked, <laughs> I get asked by people sometimes. I'll be like, "What do you want me to make?" And they're like, "List things that are on the task list or things that are on concepts and principles." I'm like, "Go to Sitecore." <laughs> like, go to Sitecore. Like, yeah, like they, uh, or like, uh, I mean, someone like yourself digging into the different task list items, going through a podcast and that sort of stuff. Like, uh, those are things for whatever reason, I just don't interest me on like creating them. And that's um, cool. You're, and, you're doing, you're doing amazing stuff also. Yeah. That's, that's kind of how this endeavor works or kind of like this theme too, is like, if you're looking to tear something down, uh, it's probably just not for you. And we probably need that thing for other people out there. Like when you were saying auditory based content in the field would be really useful for, for you to understand and learn from. Right. Um, the, that's how we should be looking at this. Like uh, even like all the DVBA videos that I've made, someone could make those from a non-binary, a non-binary or a female perspective and probably copy them verbatim and have a totally different audience that pays attention to them and cares for them because of who's presenting that material, right? Like yeah. we need a multitude um, of different people creating different content because the world of content and consuming and learning nowadays uh, comes down to a lot of factors, including uh, is it being presented in the right different formats, audio, video, written, et cetera. Um, and are we, uh, and, and these things as well as to like who people tend to click into, pay attention to, respect, um, and have shared values and shared perspectives with at the end of the day, right? So we just need more stuff. Like like we need more stuff related to behavior analysis. So, And um, and we get better as we go. Like the stuff that my very first podcast episode was on a really crappy mic and you can tell. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel really bad because like there was nothing I could do. It was, it was, it was what it was, but now I have a better quality mic. I have a better, yeah. a better understanding of, of audio editing um, and, and how, the, how to do that stuff. And it just starts with something. But for my first few posts were just goofy little, little memes. Yeah. And now I post something about um, understanding different perspectives and I'm getting hundreds of people going, huh? <laughs> and, and I still love doing my memes. I just do less of them because yeah. You know, I, I respect the meme game. I've never got into it and I never, like, I never created them and I never, 
like I just wasn't interested. I value a good meme. Let's put it that way. Okay. But like they're very hard to create and um, they just weren't as like captivating to me personally on some of the creative process I really like. But yeah, like that's a perfect example. I remember when people were talking about uh, when memes were getting big, when a bunch of people were, I mean, I feel like this was like the last, like uh, it's, it's just on Facebook behavior, man, other folks, yourself, making things, sharing things. Like there was days where it was like, there's a dozen new memes to go check out that are like floating around that are getting shared across groups and stuff. Um, and people were like, is this what we resorted to? I remember some perspectives of that being, you know, communicated and it's like, Hey, uh, uh, this is just something a little bit different and you can consume it and you can uh, not follow it too. But you could also realize that like, uh, times are changing. Generations are changing. Communications changing. Um, let's all kind of go with it. And my, my, uh, call oftentimes to people that might not dig something is how could you use what you do know or share your perspective with a creator in that case that would help them make something better. And that might be like offering to be a guest on a podcast or offering a resource that you think was overlooked or offering a, a, an alternative perspective to how somebody interpreted something. Um, it does no good <laughs> trying to, uh, to scoff and balk at it or balk at it in the background or like on your own and stress over it. Right. Um, like do something about it. Right. Uh, and, and help that person out. And it, and, it, and it also is trying to read something or, or, or consume something that's from a different perspective mm -hmm. and trying to apply the behavior analytic perspective to it and then learning the vocabulary of that other perspective and trying to apply that to behavior analysis. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've actually, I'm actually doing that right now. I'm, I'm reading a book about narcissism and okay. it is, it is, heavy with the Freudian terminology, but I am doing my best to see the different behavior analytic components going in. Mm -hmm. And I had a little insight. That little insight was narcissists frequently use extinction to manipulate people. Okay. So like narcissists will do the silent treatment or, or uh, kind of try to, this is, I'm using the terminology that they're using. Obviously, yeah, yeah. the function of behavior is attention and access, right? Yeah. But the Freudian terminology is we're, we're, we're assigning a title to this, this individual. We're saying they're a narcissist. And what they do is a silent treatment. And, what, and that creates insecurity in the, their big air quotes here, victim. Mm -hmm. And then their victim feels that insecurity. And then they tend to get emotionally distraught and sometimes they'll lash out and then the narcissist will turn around on them and make them seem like the bad guy. Yeah. That is an, a unethical application of extinction. <laughs> Literally to the T yeah. like yeah. that's an extinction burst that the individual is experiencing. And, and I'm, and I'm like, where would I have been if I had not been open to experiencing and understanding this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's kind of what I'm, I'm hoping we can help people see is like a big part of this making a difference is being open to new experiences and trying new things and trying to understand different perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, a, a big part of it is trying to see that behaviorism can and, and uh, functional contextualism as well. 
can be yeah. applied anywhere that we go. Yeah. Um, in so much as I just had this insight while we were, ta- we were talking about memes. Yeah. Um, memes are just an application of relational frame theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's a lot of fun. Um, do you have any closing thoughts? I don't want you to be late for your class. So I'm, no, just, I'm hoping no, we yeah. can wrap it up. So that way you're, you're not yeah. put in a bad place. <laughs> yeah, no, we're good. Um, yeah. I mean, I hit on this, but if you find yourself want to engage in some counter control, some punitive sort of measures, you got some sign of damages, uh, sign of signs of damage that, that you think's festering and you want to, you want to see blood or at least uh, get somebody to, to, uh, riled up on a Facebook comment, whatever it is. Um, that's like the first indication of that. There's going to be a better way to go about it. <laughs> like, like when, when that's what you want to resort to. And um, I honestly don't think out of like very rare extreme circumstances of like life or death, that there's like reasons why we should be opting into anything like those sort of things too, as a potential, um, behavior change strategy. Um, so yeah, like the, the best thing somebody could do is try to work on trying to solve some of these issues day to day and some sort of small contribution that could be teaching one person, something that you're supervising every day that could be, um, you know, teaching a class like I'm going to do once a week right now. Um, those sort of things. And it might not be your time necessarily like to do those things or you don't know what that is, but like you can keep learning and figuring out other things and find that. Like uh, I didn't find ways that I think I was contributing positively to the field for like the first six years of my career. I just like, started coming together after learning a bunch and trying a whole lot of different things. Um, but yeah, like we need people that are creating and trying to solve problems and like adding value to the community, not trying to make it more divisive. Um, and if there was a, a something that might be useful for people to go check out, which is an open educational resource, um, open source document, is Embry and Biglin published an article in 2006 called um, Embry and Biglin 2006, looking at what's called evidence-based kernels. So the idea was is that they're the minimum units of behavior change. So minimum procedures of behavior change, where if you take anything out of the procedure, it falls apart. So if you think about discrete trial teaching, there's certain components that need to be in there. And if you remove those certain components, then it no longer is effective. They look at the minimum procedure you need to implement to be effective. Um, An example of, they have, I think, 50 of them in there or so, Um, discrete trial teaching being one of those. But um, one of those is, is this us versus them mentality. Relational frame theory, <laughs> it could be, it could interpret this. When you frame things as us versus them um, in any sort of way, what that's going to do is it's going to make those groups more divisive and increase the chances of aggression. <laughs> yes. So uh, we've known this since the 50s in research, I think is what they cite there, like an article in 54 or something like that. Um, and this is like uh, Embry and Big One. Uh, big one's published in behavior analysis and contextual behavioral science for, for decades. Um, I don't know Embry's full story, but the point is, is this is not only being done in behavioral psychology research, behavior analysis research and understood, but it's in our books. We should be all being trained on like um, these sort of things. So you can check out these evidence-based kernels, but you could also re-listen to this podcast potentially after reading that list of them and, uh, 
for example, I could self-reflect and see like, did I insert some us versus them mentality that maybe made this issue worse that we were speaking on? Or did I present things in a way that potentially um, didn't dabble into those things, right? Because that's the last thing I'm trying to do right here is speak on the topics, but make it more divisive and yeah. uh, create other issues, right? Um, but I feel like we have a responsibility also to like know what those evidence-based kernels are so we can implement them when we need to, or at least not step into them when we shouldn't be. So like the us versus them one, if I see myself wanting to type a comment or say something like that, um, I need to step back and be like, nope. Because when you do this us versus them mentality framing in your sentence structure, in your argument, in your video, whatever it is, what you're going to do is you're going to make it more likely that these people are not going to get along and more likely that aggressive tendencies aggressive behavior actually happens. Mm -hmm. So knowing about them, um, even if you're not in a, a contractual relationship where you can actually implement with somebody a behavior change procedure, you're on like a social media site, for example, knowing about them, you can still opt out of things that, that will just make the situation potentially worse from both perspectives, right? So that'd be a resource I'd like to share. And then um, I also want to praise you just again for what you're creating, what you're doing here. Um, the... What I've been calling for is people trying to create solutions and um, create different things that will help with perspectives in a way and understanding things, which is my understanding is like the whole reason the bearded behaviorist got going and what you do, right? <laughs> like, yeah. like you're the embodiment of that. So, um, and it, it started as a joke and a way of getting back to a, a professor I was pissed off at, but uh. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> The Daily BA kind of has a story. I'll tell you sometime off air of, okay. uh, of of like a little bit of a revenge as well. Like I wanted, I wanted something else out there. Um, not in its entirety. Uh, not in its entirety. Means, I wouldn't keep doing it. Um, I can't remember what the quote is. There's something in the effect of like, you know, you don't do it because of revenge, but like you can have revenge. If revenge kind of like ignites the flame and then it gets going and, um, and, and you still enjoy it, then you can keep going with it. So yeah, the... Uh, I appreciate the opportunity and it's fun to talk Thank with you. people about different topics and uh, especially with the last year and a half or so um, I'm missing like these in-depth conversations with people that I normally have at a conference uh, hotel conference bar, something like that. Yeah. So thanks for entertaining me for so long. And <laughs> I'm always down for anyone listening to try to spend some time email and interacting, chatting, DMing and those sort of things. If it, if it's useful um, to reach out, please do, please don't hesitate. Um, that's about it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and, and having this wonderful conversation. Um, folks, remember that the OBHAVE podcast is an open source education material, which means that you can use all or part of the podcast towards perpetuating continuation of education for behavior analysis and science. Uh, just cite your sources. Again, thank you again for joining us. Um, Ryan, it's been a real pleasure and uh, we'll behave. Hey.